to The B-Sides, a podcast for progressives who love pop music. We're your hosts. I'm Hannah. I'm Mimi. And I'm Becky. Tune in for new episodes every other Wednesday to hear our conversations on pop's place in our world. And the music you should put in your ears to fuel your reckoning with the trash fires all around us. Thanks for tuning in. Here we go. Hello, and welcome to The B-Sides. We're back nice and refreshed from our little time off. And in case you forgot, we are a podcast for people who spend way too much emotional energy thinking about Jason Derulo's what you say and how it's been incorporated into the zeitgeist of the past (laughs) 20 years. And we're so glad you're here. Yes. Hi. It's great to be back. It's great to be talking about the image and heap Jason Derulo pipeline and I can't wait. This is going to be so much fun. Today's episode. Yeah. And before we get started, um, I just want to remind you to subscribe. If you haven't already, we come out every other Wednesday, most of the time. So subscribing makes it easier to keep up and open the description of this episode to find other ways to join us on the internet that we call home. So we give a little spoiler before, uh, diving in the beginning, but today we're going to be talking about our favorite TV shows and the importance of a transformative soundtrack. When done well, a soundtrack can do so much for a show an audience and featured artists enriches and even memorializes scenes, tells us how we're supposed to feel. And people, you know, can argue whether or not that's good or bad, whatever. And introduces artists and audiences to each other. And no one did it better than some of our favorite shows from the 2000s. And one show that's currently still airing from the 2000s, Grey's Anatomy, The OC, and Gossip Girl, the original. We will not be discussing uh, whatever is on HBO Max right now. Whatever the thing is on HBO Max right now that says that it's Go Piss Girl. Um. <laughs> I lost Mimi at that one. Um, Something that these three specific shows, and honestly, many, if not like every show has in common, is multiple storylines all playing out at once. And these shows often have some storylines that are truly not intersecting at all, especially in like later seasons of these shows when different actors are like mad at each other, can't be in the same room, and they just fully have storylines that have nothing to do with each other. So then it's the job of the soundtrack to tell you how the different storylines and the moments are connected. And many of the best musical moments from all three of these shows, there are some notable exceptions, happen when one song is really foregrounded during a montage of a few different storylines all intersecting, but they're intersecting not in plot, but in tone. And the music is what sets that tone. That is so true. It's a really good point. And sometimes we don't know how important those songs are. We don't know what we have till it's gone. But, you know, with some shows of the 90s and early 2000s, at least, um, you know, there have been recent licensing issues on streaming services that have stripped shows of their original soundtracks. And that trend shows just how integral certain songs were to a lot of shows. Um, Dawson's Creek was a big one that people talked about. Uh, And that is pretty interesting too, because I don't know, I learned a little bit about licensing things at my job and the way that you sort of like bargain how much you're going to pay, how long you're going to pay to license something. 
Um, whether it's like an image for an exhibit or something, it's like, do we want this for five years? Do we want this forever? Like, what's it going to be? And with a lot of these older shows, they weren't built for streaming services. It was like, all right, this is going to be on air and then on syndication for a few years and that's it. So we'll pay for like five to 10 years of licensing. And then these iconic soundtracks are gone. But luckily with the shows we're talking about today, the OC and Gossip Girl, which are both on HBO Max and Grey's Anatomy, which is on Netflix, they all have their soundtracks intact which is really important because they would be truly different and probably unwatchable (laughs) shows without their soundtracks. So we can't wait to talk about it. Yeah. It's actually interesting that you bring up licensing because I was thinking about this. I don't know if you guys watch this week's Bachelor in Paradise yet, but they have Lance Bass come come on and they do a minute's worth of it's going to be me. And that must've been very expensive for ABC to have bought. And I. I, on reality TV show, you, you don't hear a lot of music. And I think for that purpose, that it's extremely expensive to like buy these songs and these rights that it had me thinking about, wow, ABC just like decided to spend a shit ton of money to buy. It's going to be me. So we like recognize Lance Bass. I don't know. It was cute, but. That's a really good point, Becky. My only thought in that scene was when they, when I was like, they're going to play an NSYNC song. I was like, well, bye, bye, bye is like the song. And then I was like, but that, no, it has to be, it's going to be me. And then I was like happy with myself for being correct about that. But that's a, that is a really good point. That must have been quite expensive and they've yeah. got to, they've got to license it forever. Yeah. And let's get into the episode and these iconic soundtracks. Today's podcast is melding two of my favorite hobbies, and I assume you two, Mimi and Hannah, TV and pop music. And no, it's not focused on Bravo Webs, but if you are interested in that, I would check out episode 25. Um, instead, we're going to be doing a deep dive into some of our favorite melodramas, dark comedies, all around, can you believe that just happened, what the fuck, shows, Grey's Anatomy, The OC, and Gossip Girl. And One more note before we get started, which I actually didn't know until now. I don't think any of us knew until now that all three of these shows had the same music supervisor, Alexandra Pasavas. I don't want to butcher her, her name. She, according to an article from Vice at times, Pasavas says she mulls over more than 100 different tracks while listening for the perfect song to go at a specific moment in the program. And she's made a career of having the ability to pick the right one. I'm sure that's actually like really hard and complicated, but also like, oh my God, dream job. (laughs) Like, that is so cool. Yeah. And it's like, not just like, it's, it's like, it's picking the track and then mixing the track in, which seems also really fun and really hard to do. And, um, it's done, it's done like so well in the OC all the time, the mixing, um, that does sound like a dream job. And Same really- with, with Grays and which we'll talk about first, but also I'm sure she had a big say in it, but Shonda Rhimes, the creator of Grays also had a heavy hand in the music selection process too, which I don't know if that's the same for Gossip Girl and for the OC. I mean, so, yeah, sorry, Hannah, go ahead. 
I was just going to say it makes you wonder how how much the music producers need to be the soundtrack producers need to be in touch with the writers at like in what comes there are moments where it's almost like it's not just that you picked a perfect song that they wrote and directed and shot this scene with this song in mind that has to be true sometimes yeah so yeah I think that's that's true and right like Shonda Rhimes definitely played a big role and then for the OC and Gossip Girl the creator of both of those shows is Josh Schwartz who um and we'll talk about this a little later but he basically said uh that he wanted music to be like another main character on the OC and so he he worked very closely with her on that on on music production so I think that's and I think that's true like I they have like a real collaborative relationship and they worked on other projects and I imagine that's true of of her with Shonda Rhimes as well yeah was she doing all three shows at the same time um wouldn't that be wild I don't think so because I think the OC ended like right as Gossip Girl began so I think but she it was on together but she did but she Grey's. did because Grays has been on for 300 years <laughs> yeah she did Grays uh like overlap with the OC and with Gossip Girl I did google it today that the OC ended in February 2007 Gossip Girl started September 2007 they feel like completely different eras to me but it's just because like their kind of center point is far is like relatively far apart you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Gossip Girl is like New York's answer to the OC in a way, you know? Um, But I agree because, because they started at, at not very different times, but also very different, like 2003 and 2007 in some ways are worlds apart. And uh, yeah. I don't know. It's they they do feel like different. It's like it's like when you said uh when we saw a picture of Miley Cyrus and Britney Spears and you were like that that was also probably in 2007. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, thankfully Grey's Anatomy started right smack dab in the middle of 2003 and 2007. Uh Grey's is started in 2005 and it is the only one of these three shows to in fact has been on for the continuous 16 years now. So if you haven't dabbled in it at some point, then I admire your courage to totally avoid popular culture. Uh, Grey's Anatomy is a drama, for those of you who don't know, about residents and doctors at a hospital in Seattle, Washington. While it is an ensemble show, it does revolve around Meredith Grey, a first-year resident, and you later learn her ties to the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. Grey, Grey's Anatomy. Okay. The show was and is still so successful that it spurred many good, questionably good spinoffs, including Private Practice and Station 409. And I'll admit, I'll admit, I'll be the first to admit here. I was I was late to Grey's. I was late. I binged all 16. Well, I guess I must have been 15, 15, 14 seasons in 2019 during an eight month span, which if you do the math out time wise is... (laughs) a lot of time watching grace and that my only regret was that I didn't save it for the pandemic, but hindsight is 2020. So, uh, Mimi and Hannah have you do any relationship to grace? 
Okay. Well, first of all, that's really impressive what you did there. Um, proud of you for that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. No, I not even, not even a hint of sarcasm from over here. Um, I have seen random episodes or scenes years ago because I had roommates who watched it, but it was like too, it was, I was like too far gone. Like they were on season 12 or whatever. I was just like, that's a little late, but, um, I do know that I remember my parents saying a lot that I don't think they really watched it, but they said like, it is not reflective of medicine at all, (laughs) which is funny. I don't really care about that. Um, but I love Jesse Williams and secondhand through you, Becky and other people. I know that the soundtrack is iconic and it includes a lot of my faves. So I'm excited to learn more about it and, and chat about it. Hannah. (laughs) Call the medic. I'm sorry. I know. (laughs) Get me to what's it called? What's the hospital Uh, called? Sloan. Well, it has like many, um, it has the hospital. No, it has a name that I'm blanking on. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably fucking screaming at me. If you're a Grey's Anatomy fan. Well, to answer your question, Seattle grace. Okay. See, Oh yeah, that's right. I've heard that. Okay. Seattle grace. Um, I am not a Grey's Anatomy fan, although I have watched it off and on, especially in the earlier days. Like I know that I watched it when I was in high school and I watched it enough to know the major facts and like to still now know the major facts and characters. And like, I even remember some of the big episodes from, from that era, but, um, I don't think I've really watched it since like 2010. Um, and I was thinking back on it. Like, I don't think I ever actually chose to watch an episode of Grey's Anatomy. I think it was like, if I was like watching TV and like, it's what was on, I watched it. It felt like it was just happening to me. Um, I have watched a number of Shonda shows. I really can't anymore with Shonda. I just can't. I can't do it. Well, she's not, she's not on Grey's. She's not a writer for Grey's anymore. Really? She left. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Okay, so I, another chance. <laughs> it's not as good anymore. Yeah. Oh, that's a bummer. But she is credited. Like, it's still her show. But, um, and I'm jealous because you guys have the opportunity to watch all of the seasons. I honestly was thinking about rewatching it and I only watched it for the first time two years ago. So, um, music plays a pivotal role in Grey's Anatomy, which both have mentioned without even having, you know, seen it. It's used in the most dramatic parts to help tell a story and to further plot, further the plot. And then sometimes the same snippet of songs, which we will definitely discuss, is used to remind the viewer that something bad, mostly unbearably sad, is about to happen. And they'll play like the same song to like trigger. And you're like, oh, shit, chasing cars is playing. Someone's going to die. Um, <laughs> so Shonda Rhimes, who we have talked about the mother and creator of the show has said one of her favorite parts of writing the show was finding and layering inter- interesting songs in it. So that leads me to believe that yes, Alexandra worked on it, but I, I would imagine that Shonda, um, like she, she says in interviews that she would work through a big book of songs given to her by Alexandra, or she finds songs she likes and just adds it into the show herself. And, or she'll even talk to an artist and they'll write a song for the show because she's Shonda Rhimes and it's Grey's Anatomy. And 
we know that Shonda is a big pop star fan uh, based on her recent music selection for Bridgerton, which I did not watch, but there was a cover of Wildest Dreams and Taylor Swift named her cats after Grey's Anatomy's characters. So we, we respect Shonda for all of her decisions. And I, we could have spent four hours talking about Grey's Anatomy. So for the diehard fans, I apologize. I selected a few songs. It was tough to narrow it down. There's a lot of honorable mentions here, but there are many songs in the show that are repeat songs, which I think might be unique. And that's probably because the show has been on for so long that they can use it to further the plot um, in that way. So the first song which we'll all know is Chasing Cars by Snow Patrol. And the first two chords strike and you you already feel pain. Your body tenses up. People are moving in slow motion. The world is spinning along. He sings, if I lay here, would you lie with me and just forget the world? Are you bawling? I'm bawling. You know, you know something is going to happen. And this ballad is used three times, at least, in Grey's Anatomy throughout the 16 seasons. And... People think it's the unofficial theme song because it's used so often. I'm going to spoiler alert um, in season two, as Izzy cuts the Elvad with her dying boyfriend, Denny, and she just lies with him as his body becomes cold. So literally, if I if you lie here, would you lie with me just to forget the world? It's played again in season seven when Callie is in a car accident and you're like, oh, shit, she's singing, chasing cars. She's going to die. She doesn't die yet. No, she doesn't die. <laughs> and lastly, and perhaps most pivotal is when Derek dies in season 11. And you can't listen to the song now without bursting into tears. Do they? So this song is like, so now I know why this song was like literally everywhere. And it's so like the second half of the 2000s. Do they, do you recall them playing it like anytime later? I mean, season 11 is pretty late. So yeah, they, I mean, that's what, when in my research that I found the last time they played it, it doesn't mean they might've played it again, or they will play like an orchestral version or something like that. But it really is like the, that and the song we'll talk about after, or like the unspoken uh, theme songs of Grace. That's great. I mean, that's great. Um, the, cause I'll get to it later, but um I'm realizing now that like both this and the OC have main character deaths that involve car accidents and like these music motifs. It's great. These people are great. Yeah. Literally chasing cars. Yeah. (laughs) Literally. When it comes on like the second time, were you like, wow, this is brilliant of them to call back or were you like, okay, like get a new thing, man. Well, so the second time, well, it's used at the end of season two, but it's also used in the trailers for season three. But the real second time it's used is in the the musical episode, which we will talk about. Um, So it's a little bit, the way it's integrated is slightly different than um, you would if it, when it's used in season 11, when Derek is dying. Um, But what I think is actually a testament to how popular Grey's is. So not only was the song underscoring tear-jerking sobs. It also catapulted Snow Patrol's mainstream success. According to a Seattle Times story from 2006, it was released here May 9th, and a week later, its lead-off single, Chasing Cars, was featured predominantly 
in a season finale of the hit television series, Grey's Anatomy. And by the next day, Chasing Cars was number one, the number one downloaded song on iTunes. And it was quickly embraced by radio and MTV, particularly after the band re-edited the video with footage from the show. And so a week later, Snow Patrol's Open Your Eyes provided end music to the season finale of ER. So it really shows that it's a question too. It's like Shonda and Alexandra, like clearly they, they found the song and like catapulted to its success. And I really would like to go back to Taylor. And I think that's how we got the last time off red because she was a big Grace fan and she might not have known Snow Patrol if not for the death scenes. Makes so much sense. Like he's so random until you remember that he's not random to her. Like he's not random to Taylor, especially right. 2011 Taylor who was writing 2012 songs you know yeah I mean this was in 2006 but she clearly like so it was like so important to her it still yeah. is yeah yeah um and another song that's similar yeah. and- I'm sorry to interrupt but like do you think that he is going to be on the re-records that's one of the questions whether or not right. Gary Lightfoot yeah like Ed Sheeran posted that video of him like re-recording his harmonies on everything has changed so I guess I guess we're just doing it all once more with feeling good for Gary Lightfoot. He needs it. I think, I don't know what's up with snow patrol these days. <laughs> so, um, another band, I'm not quite sure what's up is ha- is the fray. So similarly to chasing cars, how to save a life by the fray had a very similar pathway as snow patrol. Uh, another banger though, that carried us through Gray's most te- treacherous moments was how to save a life by the fray. The song is used in so many pivotal moments in the show. It, like Chasing Cars, is often mistaken as a theme song. Shout out to Emily in the Facebook group who also made this point, uh, which makes perfect sense. The song's message matches perfectly with Derek Shepard's, who is later married to Meredith, and we talked about his death. His favorite phrase is, it's a beautiful day to save lives. So um, we're introduced to it at the end of season two as the doctors prepare to scrub in. It's later used in promo videos for season three. And it's also used when we lose Derek. So there's a big overlap with the chasing cars and the how to save a life. Um, the, and what's interesting is again, back to Alexandra, she heard the fray live in the early two thousands and pushed for the song to be included in the show. And that's how it skyrocketed the band's success on billboards, chart tracking, how to save a life is the phrase biggest hit to date, spending well over a year on the hot 100 peaking at number three and has gone platinum three times. And this really is in part due to the success that it was included in Grey's Anatomy soundtrack volume two. And so to answer your question, Sarah, from the Facebook group, yes, Grey's made these songs famous. And most importantly, it was my MySpace song <laughs> in 2006, which, I mean, Becky, you're just connecting the dots and making me realize uh, how much this show has, in a way, influenced my life too. And Alexandra, she's responsible for my entire music taste. I don't still like the fray, but back then it was. We were all quietly into Christian rock bands. We, we were. No. <laughs> Switchfoot anyone? Like yeah, Switchfoot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how to save a life was like such a good medical drama show. Cause it's like how to save a life, you know, it like fits in um, perfectly there. And like the solid, like slow and then it like really picks up um it's a great song and it will forever make me think of Grey's um and 
this is a different route and we're happy that Alexandra took this, but where did the good go by Tegan and Sarah is a, a huge great songs. It's used in a lot of episodes too many to count because it's used, uh, anytime Meredith needs to de-stress and dance. So she's either dancing alone. Um, she's lost someone in the ER dance. Christina moves away dancing to this mom dying dance. It's a seminal song. She danced with her kids later in other seasons. Um, and it really like personifies like female friendship, I think, and like being present and in the moment and like dealing with all the stresses that happens when you're working at, in a hospital and also just like dealing with all this shit that happens when you're on a melodrama and just everything bad happens to you because you've been on the show for 16 seasons. And what I couldn't find, and it'd be interesting to know if anyone knows this, Tegan and Sarah, I think were pretty famous at the time when this came out and where does the good go is like a, a, one of their most well-known songs. But I would imagine that this, that Grace probably also pushed it along or had more people know about Tegan and Sarah. Uh, they probably watch Grace, And then I would imagine that Tegan and Sarah is used a lot in the Gossip Girl soundtrack as well. I feel like it is so rare, but if you know anything to correct me or if listeners know anything to correct me it's so rare for a show to play any song twice much less like three four five times and for have it in this case be actually a plot point like it's a the character interacts with the song but just to have like a song that gets repeated and it tells you what's like what's happening right now but it's not cheesy like that's I feel like that's so rare and really cool yeah I think it's a big it's a big thing about Grey's and I don't know if other shows do it I, I actually probably would imagine that other Shonda Rhyme shows may do it too um because it's something that she's like known for a lot of her music selection for her shows but speaking of cheesy as we wrap up Grey's Anatomy you can't oh I wanted to give some honorable shout outs to Breathe and an Alex 2am very important song very important use in the show. Um, and as someone in the Facebook group mentioned, Ingrid Michelson also, there's a lot of grades in Ingrid Michelson. We have another time. I think we should do a show on Ingrid. Maybe we'll do that about her career. Um, but Breathe falls nicely into the musical episode that happened in season seven. Um, I know neither of you are big Grace fans, so I can be quick on this, but it's ridiculous, iconic, it's absurd, but Grace is absurd in general. Everything about Grey's Anatomy is absurd uh, when you watch it. So I think it fits the bill. And basically it just like is a way for all of the stars, as you were talking about Hannah, to interact with the show's most famous songs from Chasing Cars, Breathe 2AM, How to Save a Life. Shonda Rhimes actually said that she wants to do a musical episode because Sarah, um, Sarah, who plays Callie, had just won a Tony for being on Broadway. So she wanted a way to have the character sing because she was like, oh, I have this Broadway actress, like to showcase her voice. And uh, that's why they did it. I watched the um, one of the clips from the musical episode that when they're when they're singing Chasing Cars and like I knew it was a musical episode. I knew that was the song, but I like had to I couldn't believe what I was seeing like yeah <laughs> I had no, it, to, uh 
do a double take and ground myself a little bit. It was wild. It was unbelievable, but I enjoyed it. It's, it's a choice. I watched a bunch of it too. And like, I don't, I hesitate to be critical because I know that part, like when a show takes a big risk like this, they're doing it for the fans, not for the person who like 10 years later is like watching a few clips for a podcast. <laughs> like I'm I not the target she, audience. I think Shonda did this for herself. She did it for herself. Right. I, and I, and um, Becky, you sent us a really great oral history that maybe we could even put in the show notes of how this musical episode came together. And in doing some of the other, like, you know, reading about it, someone mentioned that they were inspired by the once more with feeling episode of Buffy. And like as a Buffy fan, that kind of, I don't know, that felt like little wrong to me looking at the clips because part of Buffy always, but also in the musical episode is that it's funny. Like it's, I think it's a little funnier than Grey's. And so it's a little bit less serious. And the episode, I mean, the clips that I watched at the musical, like they all were taking themselves a little seriously, which just makes it harder to be like all in. Whereas when someone's kind of like inviting you to kind of laugh at them, it's like really, it's much easier to be all in. No, it's very serious. (laughs) It's like a very serious episode. Also because the episode before it, it ends with a car crash. And like, if Grace has taught you nothing, you're like, everyone's about who's, who's about to die at the end of this episode. And then she gets raced into the hospital and she just starts to sing. And you're like, what the fuck? (laughs) I like that they did it like it wasn't built for me to watch at this moment even though I enjoyed it like it you know in the context and everything but um yeah I feel like a number of shows did musical episodes back then and it was like silly and fun or serious in this case and I I think it's an interesting choice and I respect the the risk I do too I thought it was fun I still think it's like fun to watch back on and she just, she, other people do sing, but like Sarah is really the standout. She has an incredible voice too. So all in all in for grays, and I'm so excited to talk about gossip girl on the OC, like music is used as a string. It connects the viewer to the storyline and it triggers our memory and our connection to the show for decades to come. You can never put on how to save a life again without crying. It's good that my my space account has been deleted for 15 years. <laughs> that was great. Um, I loved it. And I'm ready to talk about some parallels with the OC, which um, I it, it would be impossible for me to overstate the cultural footprint of the show. It's so good. It is a I know I call a lot of things a cultural reset, but this like really really is the, if I could choose just one it might be this it is the millennial teen drama the flip phoneography like I call it <laughs> the way that the way that they people like chat on the phone and and flip it um that alone is perfection but no it's it is a heartwarming show it's like very soapy and dramatic but also very funny and self-aware for the time and um I think on Wikipedia and probably also on the DVD, it's called a show about affluent teenagers with stormy personal lives residing in scenic Orange County, California. What more could you want? Um, 
it's really incredible. And I hadn't seen an episode in over 10 years. And then earlier this month, I started watching season one to try to make sure that I like remembered more specifically the way that um, music was incorporated. And I was like, wow, this show is like, is my personality. Like it is my music taste. It's, it's everything. Um, So that was really exciting to revisit. Um, I do want to say like one thing that I really noticed that I did not notice when I was, I don't know, like 13, 14 and starting to watch it is I was like, Misha Barton is 17 and all of the other teenagers, quote unquote, are like in their early to mid twenties. And that's really apparent when you're an adult looking back on it. And then she was the it girl of 2003 and all of these other things when it became an overnight success. So just want to say justice for Misha, even though I understand that she was probably hard to work with, but also she was 17. So, and also she kept her transatlantic accent in this show where she's supposed to be like an art, like a person from Orange County. She's like, she'll be like, I didn't do anything. And it's like, (laughs) you're British. Okay. So back to the OC (laughs) and then to the music in particular. So this show was an overnight success and it set a million trends, which is why I called it a cultural reset. Fashion, music, Southern California affluence, aspirational vibes that outlived the show itself and brought on other shows like Laguna Beach, The Hills, the flagship Real Housewives of Orange County, broader pop culture. Um, It only ran for four seasons, and I think that the wheels really started to fall off in season three in terms of, like, the writing and the scoring and the actor chemistry and everything. But season one was actually a true masterpiece, which I think is rare for a lot of shows. And um, it also had a really long runway. It was 27 episodes in the first season alone, which is, like, nuts. And I could talk about many aspects of this forever, but we're going to talk about the way that artists were featured and music was used because that was really something special. And we're going to begin with the theme song, um, which is one of the best and most instantly recognizable of all time. And I could listen to it every day of my life, California by Phantom Planet. And uh, it's also a really interesting um, the structure is really interesting because like California, here we come is something that they say in every verse and every chorus and the bridge, like, and I don't get tired of it. I could listen to it forever. So um, before I go on Hannah and Becky, I know you haven't watched the OC, which is a rare thing, but it happens. (laughs) Um, But do you have any uh, like associations with the show the, you know, Image and Heat parodies and memes, any of that stuff. Um, so similar to how How to Save a Life somehow ended up on your MySpace page, the California song, um, as I call it, um, was like one of the first songs I remember ever buying on iTunes. Like it was important. It felt important to me to purchase when I was like young. So I didn't watch the show, but somehow I knew that song and I knew like I needed to own it on my like chunky little iPod mini that was bright green that I love. And that I like, wish I could have right now. 
Um, and yeah, I really like, I haven't interacted with this show almost at all. I felt completely in the dark about it. I did do a little bit of checking in on some clips on YouTube in advance of this episode, including, um, the use of Imogen Heap in a very pivotal scene and the parodies that came from it. But like that had, I like knew that that thing happened, but like, that's it. Like I really, I really just missed all of this. I really did. I don't know how. Yeah, I too. Um, I knew all the parodies and the theme song, obviously. Um, and I would like to correct for the record, Mimi, the Real Housewives of OC is actually based on Desperate Housewives. That I know, I know, but, but, but I'm listening. The Orange County zeitgeist moment came from the OC. Like it put that region in oh, that area. I, yeah, that, then, that made them want to do the first one there. Yes. So I would say it's a combination of both. Like, obviously it's not like, yeah, like the, the line is from Desperate Housewives, but the, that phenomenon and even Hannah being like, I needed that song for some reason, the California song is, is OC related, I would say. Yeah. Although Real Housewives of OC, uh, probably did the, the OC fictional show dirty. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know if it was the representation representation that they wanted, um, but I I watched the pilot. I couldn't get into it. I don't know. I'll have to give it another try. Do you think Hollister would have been such a big deal at this time without the OC? Probably not. Wow. Hollister, tube tops, um, newsboy caps. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Probably not. Becky, when did you watch the pilot? Do you remember? Recently. Okay. I probably watched the pilot when it came out, but I rewatched the pilot like re like within the in the pandemic. Gotcha. All right. Well, consider watching like two more episodes and seeing if it doesn't just spiral for you. I know. Everyone like can't believe that I've never seen it. So it's okay. There's always, you know, there's always time. Um, but yeah, so for a lot of people of our generation, like you can make a music from the OC reference and so many people will know exactly what you mean, which is really fun. And that's because, and we talked about this a bit earlier, the executive producer, Josh Schwartz and the music supervisor, the same for Grays and then Gossip Girl, Alexandra Patsavas, if I'm mispronouncing her name, I apologize. They wanted the music to be like this invisible character on the show. And it's so clear that they were really passionate about music. Like they, what it can do to elevate a scene or how to use a TV platform to introduce artists to new fans. Like they were really all about it. So I'm going to pull a quote from an MTV article from a few years back. where they talk about this and basically it says if there's one element of the show that always managed to rise above problematic plot lines, it's the music. Um, And then from the producer, they said there was a real conversation at the time of is the music in the show going to be Orange County music, which had a really booming music scene at the time with bands that sounded like sublime and no doubt, but we really wanted the music to feel like an extension of the characters. Um, 
so that was Schwartz. And then Petsava said, or Alexandra, as we've been calling her, I would send out weekly comps, compilation CDs with any music that I felt was in the world, which then we discussed at length. If someone responded to a certain band, I'd send Josh or Stephanie or one of the editors more music. Then I'd pitch for scenes and moments. How are we telling the story? How do these bands and songs and lyrics support the drama? One of the first songs that I remember sending down to the OC on an early comp was Dice, which I felt like was a beautiful song that really had a moment. Of course, it became the New Year's Eve moment in The Countdown, which is an episode from season one. Um, And a great scene, really well done. The scene mentioned there and so many others have become some of the most memorable in TV history. And that's because of the way music was integrated, I think, you know, like songs played for extended times across scenes. We talked about mixing earlier, so not just at the beginning or end, um, but faded enough in like a very subtle way to allow dialogue to kind of go on and go in and out. So the song could play in the background and seem like it was on a radio or a stereo somewhere. And this happened a lot. In season one, definitely during like driving scenes or party scenes, but also in quieter moments. And um, like Hannah said earlier, there were a lot of scenes of like very starkly different moments pulled together by music, things that were happening at the same time. So, um, you know, the OC would bring together like very different vibes with a perfect song to connect them. And one of the most jarring and impressive that I remember is in season three when Ryan, uh, Ryan Atwood, of course, a.k.a. Ben McKenzie and Marissa, a.k.a. Misha Barton, finally sleep together after this like long on and off relationship. And that moment is spliced together with a scene of her dad getting his ass kicked on the beach. And it's like so bizarre. <laughs> Uh, and unbelievable, but it somehow works. The song is called Salvation by the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, and I don't know anything else by them, but it's amazing. Um, similarly, a song that we all know, but which debuted on the OC, Cole Plays Fix You, plays over three scenes integrated in season two, a bittersweet scene of Ryan and Marissa reuniting outside of prom, a sad scene of uh, Seth Cohen, aka Adam Brody's mom and dad having a conversation about his mom's alcoholism and then like a harrowing scene of his grandpa having a heart attack and falling into a pool. All of these things are happening at once and Fix You is playing and it uh, somehow works really well. It's it's wild. Um, so Kristen said in the Facebook group, also recalling that Fix You was played in the trailer for this episode, and it was like a 30-second clip for the prom episode. She said, it instantly hooked me, and I obsessively tried to find the full song online, which was also such a common thing. Like, you would just, like, hear a song and frantically look for the lyrics or something. And, you know, search engines weren't as good back then. So, it's the whole thing. Um, and then, like Gray's, there are these musical motifs across episodes that work really well, including season one and season three finales. The song Hallelujah um, 
different version different different versions of this season three is image and heap it plays like it's marissa cooper's and ryan atwood's theme music in a way first when he leaves and breaks her heart at the end of season one and then when she dies and breaks his heart at the end of season three also in a car accident um so our our good friend liz who put us on to doing this episode in the first place i think mentioned this as well and said it's an extremely good song choice uh with hallelujah whenever anything bad happens to marissa on the oc um obviously that song is like heart-wrenching no matter where it goes in anything so and then we get to the part that we have already mentioned earlier the season two finale hide and seek by imogen heap um which plays from the top of the episode at a funeral um so it plays from the beginning of the song it goes through a funeral scene and then it starts uh at the chorus like very abruptly at the very end of the episode when marissa shoots ryan's brother trey to protect ryan and then that song starts up again and it's just like i don't know it's a foreshadowing moment through the episode and then it also spurred like a million parodies and memes and it's contentious because a lot of people at the time were like i don't know we were all like blown away at the time and then people in retrospect are like this is silly you have to sing it no you have to sing it you have a better voice (laughs) you just have to do what happens i'll i'll play the part of the gun okay and then you'll be (laughs) ready what you say (laughs) i know all the words i just i it it was really weird (laughs) and then the all of like the dear sister snl parodies it was a really weird incorporation but i also love it i did i watched the clip because i had never seen that before and i thought it was actually whatever interesting and powerful and the good use of the song but it makes so much more sense that it was even more powerful now knowing what I know which is that it had been playing already through the song it was like a it was a musical theme people understood were familiar with like was was already present yeah exactly and I had forgotten that part until I I watched a little earlier and I was like oh this is very clever so um so yeah I mean the the genius musical incorporation of the OC just like really was elevating scenes left and right. And it was done across genres. So image and heave, like we just talked about at these like incredibly dramatic life or death moments, um, boys to men when, uh, Seth is like pining over summer, AKA Rachel Bilson. Um, spoon, they play a lot of spoon songs, which I loved when like the boys are like walking around like their high school campus or they're like in Miami for something, whatever. The black eyed peas blasting at a house party, Rilo Kylie playing on the radio during like a scenic, meaningful drive, always portions for foxes, just like in Grey's Anatomy. Um, it's great. I think there's really something for everyone, and I wanted to make a point that there are all of these different genres at play um, because it's influence on my 
music taste and exposure was profound. And I know that's true of a lot of people of our generation. Um, and there were even, they would like with Grays, they would put out um, music from the OC mixes, which is cute, I think. They'd be like mix CDs from the OC. And then there'd be these like pitchfork reviews that were like really obnoxious and smarmy. Um, but I think that says something about the musical footprint of the show and the dynamic. Okay, so although the music selection could be really eclectic, indie rock was the main was the main one on this show. Um, and when people say music from the OC, like they have specific artists in mind, um, because this show put a lot of artists on the map and did it in really clever ways. So you mentioned the Pitchfork articles, yeah, uh, or reviews, and I didn't read that like so much of it, but I, I noticed that like an example of why they're smarmy is that they, they called it a throwaway compilation, which like is so counter to everything we're talking about here, which is like, you don't have to like it, but like none of this was a throwaway, right? Like it was very right. thoughtful. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, just the attitude and the word choice. It's just like, and also just being wrong because the music's good, but whatever. Um, yeah, exactly. It's not at all, it's not at all a throwaway. So one of the really clever things about the OC is that they have in the show a music venue um, called The Bait Shop that the core four who we mentioned above, Ryan, Marissa, Seth, and Summer go to a lot. So the four of them, sometimes with other people, will often be going, they'll go to a concert in the midst of like some relationship drama that inevitably jumps out at the concert. And they're going to see these like little known indie rock bands or singer songwriters at the time, um, including the Killers early on, like an unknown band, Modest Mouse, Rooney, Rachel Yamagata, Death Cab was huge, to name just a few. And these acts are playing these songs on stage that coincide with the plot so well and because the show is so popular it's giving the all these acts these like really massive basically invaluable exposure to millions of people in a time where that kind of opportunity is rare um and then the artists enrich the character scenes and help move the plot forward while also introducing their own music and style to non-fictional audiences aka us um and it seems like that's a lot to hang a scene on, but it somehow works really well, I think. And like Death Cab, for for instance, was signed to Atlantic Records because of how heavily they were featured on the OC as Seth Cohen's favorite band. Because um, he mentioned them all the time and had like posters in his room and stuff. And I mean, like Kristen said above, like even the more subtle integration of songs into scenes uh, had people like me frantically looking up lyrics in real time when we liked a song so we could pay 99 cents to download it from iTunes. Um, so that was great. Okay, let's see. I think um, there are, I wanted to bring up a couple negatives and not just praise my favorite show um, forever because balance is key. So I, I mentioned earlier that like the wheels kind of fall off in season three and more and more criticisms come up about some of the artists features like 
clap your hands, say, yeah, decline to be on the show as more indie bands consider that sort of spotlight selling out. The frontman of The Shins famously said that they lost some creative control as their songs are then tailored to specific scenes and then maybe misinterpreted. So they didn't always like that. And I do think that a lot of this criticism like started to come about as the writing got lazier and the writers kind of lost the plot and Misha Barton and Ben McKenzie like lost their chemistry in this kind of bizarre way. And industry execs at Fox started exerting more control over production than they did in season one when they were like, this is new and we don't care about it yet before it was a a cultural phenomenon. So they kind of made it worse. Um, And then there were also some critiques and I'm like interested to see if you guys think this applies to Grey's and Gossip Girl as well. There were some critiques that there was too much music in the show. Like the music carried the show too much sometimes. And instead they should just let the scenes and the writing and the actors speak for it a little more um, and not have the music tell us how we're supposed to feel. So like there's a breakup scene And then they're like, maybe there could just be like silence and the character like alone or whatever, and not like immediately a song to tell us exactly how we should feel and how they feel. Um, And I sort of see that, but I also sometimes feel like people are haters and it's hard for me to be like, oh yeah, there's too much music. Yeah, I think the music is important for it. And like, no one wants silence on a TV show. It's not a play. <laughs> yeah, I do think there's like there's power in holding back music if it's like a if if it can be I don't know that I can see how that could be beautiful, but it does sound like it's not that the music is I, I think that it's a little bit of a hatery thing to say that the music is telling you how you're supposed to feel because that's just everything that's happening is telling you how you're supposed to feel. The actors' faces are telling you how you're supposed to feel. That's like you're part of a production, then the their whole thing is telling you how you're supposed to feel, but you don't notice it when it's being done well. So, you know, as someone who hasn't seen all of this, so I can't actually say my, my gut is probably that your theory is right. That it's people notice the music more when it is, you know, when it's like, when it's all a little bit off from each other, as opposed to a well-oiled machine. But I don't think it's ever, ever fair to say there's too much music in anything. Cause that's what makes it like a fun and dynamic experience. Totally. All right, so I'm going to stop um, monologuing about the OC shortly, but I'm going to give Liz the last word again via the Facebook group because she said something um, that I think is really good and connects to all these three shows. So she said, the OC feels like the show that transitioned the 90s teen shows where music is part of the culture on the show, like where they go to concerts at bars where everyone is underage somehow to music being more of an ambient vibe in Grey's and Gossip Girl. And this does seem true to me. The OC had it all. Like I said, it does the ambient stuff. They go to this concert venue a lot, things like that. Um, And there are, I can think of like earlier 90s or 2000s shows, like My So-Called Life and Freaks and Geeks and even early Gilmore Girls, where it's a a lot about like, and Buffy. Thank you, Hannah. Hannah's typing in the chat about Buffy. (laughs) And I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, and and where it's like music is more uh, part of the culture of the show and like characters are in bands and going to concerts and stuff. 
Um, and then the OC has that, but then the integration transition to these later shows like Grey's and Gossip Girl and others where music is more of like an ambient part of it, but it's not explicitly written into dialogue and plots and stuff in the same way. We have done Grey's Anatomy. We've done the OC and now it's time to do Gossip Girl. So excited. Um, this show is nearly contemporaneous with the OC, as we mentioned, like I, and I said at the top, it feels like it's a completely different era, but it was only a few months apart, which is absolutely nuts. Um, Gossip Girl's soundtrack, I think was exactly what it needed to be for a show that ran from 2007 to 2012. Like so much about the way that this show sounds is just, it's, it's perfect for this era. Um, so I guess I'm curious, Mimi and Becky, do you have any associations with Gossip Girl and music? Um, I think, so I think we've ended up talking about some of this earlier um, in terms of, you know, it being the same music producer and the, the, uh, the idea of like Gossip Girl as New York's answer to the OC somehow. But um, I just remember like, you know, it really blasted a lot of our, our top 40 faves and others. It wasn't all top 40, but I like have this really salient memory of being introduced to love game by Lady Gaga on it, but I couldn't possibly tell you where until I looked it up today. And I was like, Oh, Hillary Duff was involved of course, in the scene. Um, but I also was thinking about how much we like in a very early episode of this podcast, we talked about um, pop artists cohorts of like 2009-ish and how they're still around weirdly like Rihanna and Katy Perry and Gaga etc um, and Gossip Girl soundtracking is like a time capsule to those early years which I love for us and yeah I don't know I think Gossip Girl is so silly and entertaining and um, you know obviously the Jason Derulo what you say ambiance is iterative of the OC, which we'll talk about. I truly based my opinion on music off of, <clears throat> off of the Gossip Girl soundtrack. Like how? Tell me more. I just like remember all of the soundtracks, the way that like you guys remember the OC, I guess, or whatever. Like, I just like remember all of the music that Mimi was talking about. And like, I just have such distinct memories of the show and watching it. And like, we were in high school and there were just like a lot of cool bands that were featured on it and pop stars. I'm excited to talk about it. It does seem like, and it's interesting that these are the, are similar or the same creators and soundtrackers, because it seems like there was really a choice with Gossip Girl, whether it was the time that they were in, the pressures they were under, or just the tone and themes of the show. There was a choice to make it mainstream. Like this was a, the soundtrack was, was kind of mainstream in a lot of ways. And um, we'll get into also how there was like definitely an indie um, punky kind of vibe to it. Um, but yeah, like there were some big pop stars involved and that was like very present through the show. And as Becky alluded to, the soundtrack of Gossip Girl quickly became well-known and there was even an album titled, an album that was titled OMFGG, which is so funny. Original music featured on Gossip Girl. So clever. Love that. Um, that, that was released with season one. Becky, is that like what you're talking about? Like, do you remember that album? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what I remember because that's how I learned about the kooks. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm, got it. Some of the highlights include the kooks, the kills, 
the virgins, the ting tings. And the ting tings. I love the ting tings. Such a vibe. I will say, you know, there's differences with all of these um, soundtracks we're talking about, but some similarity is that it's unbelievable how white all these playlists are. It's like different vibes of like white people music. And and Gossip Girl, not Gossip Girl, Grey's Anatomy is the one show that's done by a black woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There you go. And yet the music is still pretty white. Well, good for them for being on the longest. So haha. Um, something really interesting about Gossip Girl is that they did this perfect job of like melding the mainstream vibes to make it a you know huge pop hit with the emo vibes that were totally the undertone of this time period. Like this was the time period where like when I was at camp with Becky for like one year, I decided I was a punk and like wore like, I don't know, what were those called? Like fuck bracelets or whatever they were called, you know, like, and I wore like black, but I couldn't fool anyone. I wasn't punk at all, but it was like, that was actually a very mainstream choice. I just felt like I felt alt, but I wasn't because it was, it was in the zeitgeist at this point. As an article in Junkie wrote, Alexandra Patsavas, our our new best friend, her decision to pick and choose from both sides of the indie mainstream divide that was so present in the mid-2000s was savvy. She understood that Gossip Girl's audience was part of a generation for whom genre classifications would mean basically nothing. Looking at a list of songs from any given Gossip Girl episode is like looking at a curated Spotify playlist. The songs are stylistically disparate, but they work as a whole. So I like this, but I do disagree with it, I think, a little bit in a very specific way. Um, In this quote, the writer, whose name is Shah D'Souza, says that this generation, which, you know, back in the day, that that generation didn't classify genres. But I think it's more about this era of music that, like, the indie was pop. The emo was pop. It's like, that's actually just what time, like, different eras, the pop is kind of in different I don't know, it takes different forms. So the culture at large was mixing indie with mainstream, emo with mainstream, punk rock with mainstream. So that's why a show about the upper class can have like a punk rock undertone throughout the whole thing. I don't know if you agree or disagree with that. I agree with that. It makes me think a lot about like Panic at the Disco and like a lot of those bands, which like maybe would be classified as emo, but now Brendan Urie is like, He's a pop star and like panning at the disco is like very pop sounds. And actually in the uh, pitchfork review of the OC that Mimi was referring to that maybe we could even link in the description, they are like lamenting how indie is pop. And this is like 2005 or whatever. They're like, oh no, indie is pop. And now looking back, it's like, hell yeah. And how fun was that? It was great. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Like I, and I don't think like I would listen to one of these gossip girl mixes and be like, wow, you know, it's all so different, but it really works together as a whole. Like, no, it just all, it went, it went mainstream and that's fine. We love pop music and we celebrate all these different cultural resets brought on by the OC. Um, And, and (laughs) no, I, no, I like, I totally agree. I think gossip girl was great for mixing all of those genres that were all basically pop at yeah. the same time, which is chaotic. And I enjoyed it. It was a loud, chaotic time. It was really loud. <laughs> 
So I want to go through some really great um, musical moments and thanks to those in the Facebook group who shouted some of these out and others that, you know, we just know from having watched this show. So let's start with episode one, which is a pilot um, that I have watched recently. I watched it a few months ago thinking that I would do an entire series rewatch, but I gave up immediately, but it was a very enjoyable, you know, hour of my life. So, you know, Serena's, Serena's back, right? Which by the way, what a brilliant device to start a show and someone's back. I just think that's so, I love that. I still think it's like such a brilliant pilot device. Anyway, so Serena's like back, right? And so she's like walking back into the Upper East Siders world. She goes into a party at Blair's. And at this time, Blair's trying to have sex with Nate for her first time in the bedroom at this party. That's like for her. And she's like a nice, you know, prim and proper girl, but also she's like trying to fuck in the bedroom. And Nate's like not into it. And Serena comes to the party looking for Blair. Oh, no. Serena comes to the party looking for her mom. And, like, everybody kind of goes nuts, right? Like, Nate is like, we have to go find Serena. And Blair is so annoyed. And what song is playing at this whole time? Perfect 2007 time capsule moment. What goes around by Justin Timberlake. Like, in some ways, screw Justin Timberlake. And we like talking about that in a lot on this show. And I stand by that. But it's a perfect song for this moment. Cause it's a really great, like low burn background song. And then hits, like it comes up exactly as we've talked about the mixing of, of these songs that like comes up and comes down. Um, and we learn a ton in this scene over this song in a very short amount of time. We learn that her brother is in the hospital. Shout out Becky and I went to camp with Connor who played Eric Vanderwoodson. Great times. Um, I was in a really, I was in two plays with him. These are just fun things. I never knew this at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We can tell stories about, about Connor. Um, very, was very exciting when he was on Gossip Girl. Um, so we're learning he's in the hospital. We're learning that Serena and Nate had a thing, but like also the Blair and Nate thing. This is all in the pilot. So much is unfolding while Justin Timberlake and like those Timberland beats are curating a soundscape in the background. Do you, do either of you remember this moment? I rewatched the pilot recently. Um, the same thing where I was like, oh, maybe I'll rewatch the series. Yeah. And I was like, no. But so I remember this. I remember them like being like in an empty bar having uh-huh. sex with uh-huh. this plane. Like they're like flashing back. Yeah. 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 And I'm like, you're supposed to be teens. You look like you're 40. I exactly. think. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing with all of these shows. That's why, yeah. that's why I said justice for Misha. Because everyone else in all of these shows. Well, and Grace, the other ones we've ever talked about, Glee, all, all of those people are in their 20s. Yeah, Grace, they're appropriately aged for what they're, they're doing. adults. Yeah, yeah, they're adults, but yes. And that's why Gossip Girl, honestly, was like kind of hard to watch because I was like, you guys are like not 15. Like not even close. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's not normal. Yeah, I, I think we remember, I remember being a great pilot. Um, and I also don't feel like I could rewatch it right now, the whole show, but. Yeah. Yeah. Go on, Hannah. Go on. Um, for another good musical moment that kind of goes to what we've been talking about, we can fast forward a few years to a surprising cameo from Lady Gaga, who clearly was much more connected to Gossip Girl than I remember. Like, I don't remember that happening, but you mentioned the love game. There's a paparazzi moment, and I'm going to talk about the bad romance. So, their moment. So, there's a party being thrown by Blair. 
and like Lady Gaga is there as the performance, which Blair explains. She says that her stepfather, Cyrus Rose, knows Lady Gaga from back when Lady Gaga was at Tish and they played cards together. And she goes, who do you think Poker Face is about? And it's like, okay. <laughs> so this is a really funny moment. And she's like strutting into the concert, just like, that's about my stepdad. Really iconic. So <laughs> like, you. yeah. So Lady Gaga starts performing Bad Romance and it's like, not the best, but probably not the worst performance of Bad Romance in the world in terms of like, you know, budget and like work that went into it. And what's funny is that it actually plays for like a total of about five minutes, which is like longer than the show, than the song is. It plays kind of over and over and over. They kind of go back and like do it all again, like a few times. And it plays under three different storylines, at least, if I'm remembering correctly, um, including one that's Dan, Vanessa, and Olivia, aka Hillary Duff, debriefing their threesome, which is like a very important plot point of that show. The show is truly unhinged. It's really an unhinged show. <laughs> it's so weird. And they mention as like, we've seen each other naked. And it's like, that's sure. It's, it's Hillary Duff. It's not what's her face that. Um... Michelle Trachtenberg. Yeah. You knew exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> it is not Michelle Trachtenberg. Um, but I did watch another um, interesting musical moment of Blair ruining Georgina's life in preparation for this, but it wasn't interesting enough to bring into the, to the full podcast. So we'll skate by that. Um, I want to share another really bizarre musical moment that a lot of people remember and that um, I think Sarah put in the uh, Facebook group, if I'm remembering correctly, where like really inexplicably Jenny's choir per- performance, Jenny's choir is singing Glamorous by Fergie acapella. We will link this in the description because you, you just, you have to see this. Because the thing that's most bizarre about this, the use of this, is that it's like horrible. It's horrible. I don't know if that's the take everybody shares, but like, I feel really bad for the group of singers who like probably were so excited to be on Gossip Girl, but it's like a horrible, horrible rendition. I just feel like someone in charge was feeling vindictive or having a bad time and was like, well, at least I am not the people who I'm going to make do this for the show. <laughs> like that's how absurd it is. Full disclosure, everyone, we have like a Google doc, doc open with like links that we shared and, and notes and stuff. And Hannah has these like comments with links on the side. And I just see my responses as like, LMAO, this is absurd. Like this. <laughs> yep. That's the take. The right. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea why else they, the, my like explanation is the only one I have for the glamorous moment, the way it went down. I don't know. I think that's, I think that you nailed it. I think you figured it out. Yeah. There's really not, there's not, no more of a sophisticated analysis for that moment. It was just really like, let's sing a song a cappella by Fergie, which, you know, was a choice. Um, so the last musical moment we have to talk about is to really bring this full circle to the other moments that we have talked about in today's, in today's conversation, which is when Gossip Girl plays What You Say by Jason Derulo during a soapy, tense, catfighty Thanksgiving dinner 
And what song, of course, does what you say sample? That's right, hide and seek, image and heap. So when Vanessa's mom asks Lily's mom why Serena's mom didn't invite her own mother to her and Dan's dad's wedding, suddenly we get, mm, what you say? Like as if it's as big of a deal <laughs> as that gunshot. And then throughout the dinner, like Jenny's mad at Eric, Vanessa's mad at Dan. And like each time they pivot, I like to like a new kind of like drop the mic, you're done. It's like, mm, what you say? <laughs> And it's just so funny, period, but really funny in light of this episode and in light of like the, the OC parody things I, I watched in advance of today's episode. It, it feels like it's a parody of the OC. It's a truly unhinged show. Really? And that uh, clip is like out of this world. The other thing about that, um, is that. It's it's one of the ways that like, you know, Gossip Girl has ambient music, but it's like not anything that most of the characters would be listening to in that scene. So like, you know, the OC might have something where it's like, yeah, there's a dinner scene and there's a song in the background, but it could be something that's like on a stereo for some reason. That song would not be on at this like fancy Thanksgiving dinner, but it plays the entire way through. And like you said, it, it like ramps up as uh as things are happening yeah it's it's like slightly too loud yeah it's like they're in a club and they're like talking over the song (laughs) right it is a moment that the critique that was you know shared against the OC about the music doing the work actually in some ways like could be a little relevant here in terms of it's kind of like, I'm going to drop a bomb. And now it's like a big music moment. And it's like, well, that wasn't actually such a big bomb. It's not a big deal. This like, you're fine. Everything's fine. Actually. That's true. It's like, yeah, it's kind of like a crutch when the writing is not good enough to, to amplify something itself, to make that a huge bomb itself or whatever, evoke whatever feeling. Love it. Can't say enough about it. I didn't remember how funny the music choices were in Gossip Girl until doing this episode. I I had planned on coming into this a little bit more like earnest, but I really just couldn't. I couldn't keep a straight face through all of this. Um, I think that uh, in our Facebook group, uh, Reagan put it really well. Reagan says, as a huge lots of views Gossip Girl fan. I think the show was a super was super important in that it exposed a lot of lesser known artists to a massive audience, basically giving it a blessing of approval with a sheen of coolness to music that people otherwise never would have heard, which I think is very similar to the other shows we're talking about today. The examples are Peter Bjorn and John's Young Folks comes to mind, as well as Robin's Dancing on My Own, some Santa Gold, etc. The lavish lifestyle portrayed in Gossip Girl also created organic opportunities for up-and-coming artists to visibly perform rather than just serving as background and soundtrack music. I was so pumped when artists like Lady Gaga and Florence and the Machine would just casually show up. And I also remember thinking that it was really dumb when they had Dead Mouse playing at a party. So it is similar to these other shows that do give like, you know, opportunities for up and coming artists and kind of pull things into the mainstream. Yeah. I think what's different. I think the OC and Gossip Girl is similar in that way. In Grey's Anatomy, there's no like, they don't go to like concerts the way that like the celebrities, celebrity singers, like don't show up on the show 
to perform the way that they do. And that's probably just a function of like the, the plot, the plots just being different. Like they're all dramas. I get like, they're not, they're not sitcoms. What are they? They're just hour long dramas. Um, But it is interesting that Grey's still was able to like promote artists just like strew strictly their music, not like having like the fray come to Seattle Grace and like perform. That would be something. Maybe that'll be the series finale. It should be, you know, I mean, right. Cause it's like, that wouldn't fit. It, it went much more seamlessly fits into a show that revolves around quote unquote teenagers. than it does a show that mostly you know, it was based around a hospital and, and doctors. And Which is why maybe we got a musical episode and why uh, thankfully we didn't get one in the OC or in Gossip Girl. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't, unless I'm forgetting something from a later season, but I don't think we did. One thing we did get from the OC, do you guys, so Peter Gallagher, who's, who's um Adam Brody's dad in the OC, who I love. He's, such a calm Jewish presence on that show. He, um, on the show about otherwise wasps, uh, he has, he has like a singing moment and I was like, wait, he can sing. And then he had an album that came out because of his singing on the OC. He like sings on stage to his wife. I could see him Um, having a beautiful voice. He really does. I forgot. And I was shocked when I, wow. Shocked and pleased. Wow. Um, but yeah, no, no musical episode. And yeah, I guess I can see too why, you know, grades would do that. And it's much more kind of like fish out of water than uh, the other two shows we're talking about. Yeah. I can kind of see the writers choosing to do a, a musical episode of Gossip Girl. So I feel very, very blessed and grateful that they chose not to. And yeah, in conclusion, go piss girl. <laughs> that's gossip girl they know we love it and we really do xoxo etc what a show what a soundtrack and thank you all for tuning in uh what a show what a soundtrack so that's that's our show and we are so thankful for you listening you made it this far please join our facebook groups where the conversation will continue to pop off mm, what you say did you only when well that's fades out but we don't we don't own the licensing rights to that song so we'll just sing it we'll sing over it we're licensing it yeah for it. i've licensed it for this episode yeah hopefully no one's getting murdered uh or shot or going to like, seattle Green. or yeah dying yeah getting written out of the show yeah exactly okay thanks for listening to the b-sides podcast we want to connect with you Check out the show notes to find our Instagram, Twitter, and join our Facebook group where you can link up with us and other progressives who love pop. Please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review if you haven't already, and consider supporting the B-Sides on Patreon. Until the next time we cut to the feeling, I'm Mimi. I'm Becky. I'm Hannah. 